Amen. Let's thank our orchestra and praise band and worship team. Thank you guys. Uh, why don't you go ahead and join hands with those around you? And uh, as you do, let's bow our heads in prayer together, can we? As you pray, I want to encourage you right now to just, from where you stand, just whisper a prayer for somebody you know who's struggling right now. Maybe a family who's uh, feeling the squeeze of our financial situation and economic storms. Maybe just ask God to be with them during their difficult time, would you? Father, during this joyous time of year where we celebrate the wonderful gift of your Son, we don't want to forget those who are struggling, those who are needy among us, Lord. We probably all have friends and neighbors right now, co-workers, small group members, Lord, who are just um, having a hard time. And Lord, we want to care for one another as you intend that your body should. And Lord, we pray your grace upon them, your presence with them, your mercy poured out on them. And Lord, may the body of Christ truly be your hands and your feet during this season that we're in. And uh, we thank you for today. We pray that you'd open our eyes to your heart. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. 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 And you can have a seat. Well, we are approaching the biggest birthday celebration of the year, Christmas. And uh, most of us are very excited about that. But just thinking about that, wouldn't you agree that uh, as we approach that, that day, that we're living in some extremely volatile, uncertain, unsettling times? Wouldn't you agree? Every day before I leave the office, I log on to the news site just to check and find out what happened that day in the world. And it's kind of beginning to sound like a broken record every day. You know, global markets going haywire again. Yet another terrorist bombing somewhere in the world, a horrific thing. Yet another high-profile person tainted by uh, scandal again. OJ on trial again. <laughs> another financial institution or industry leader going belly up or bellying up to Congress asking for some bailout money. And of course, another roller coaster day on Wall Street. More bad economic news, new rounds of layoffs, unemployment going up, etc., etc., etc. Have you noticed how commentators keep reaching back further and further in their attempt to find an era in our country's history that is comparable to what we're going through right now? First they were saying, well, this is kind of like the days right after 9-11. Then they started saying, this is kind of like it was in the early 90s, the downturn that took place then. Then it was the early 80s. Then it was the mid-70s. Now I hear them saying, we haven't been through anything like this in this country since the Great Depression of the 1930s. So I think about this. To me, in times like these, our core values as a church ring more true in my heart than ever. In times like these, we need God, don't we? We need Him. In times like these, we need each other more than ever. 
And in times like these, we need to remember that others really do need us. You know, I'm convinced that times like these offer the church of Jesus Christ incredible, unprecedented opportunities to literally be the church, to be the body of Christ, to be his hands, to be his feet, especially as we exhibit and express one of our God's chief attributes in times like these. Today I want to talk with us about radical generosity. And some of you are thinking, wait a second, economic downturn, radical generosity. How are you putting those two together? Explain that to me. Well, I think there's a strong biblical case for this, and I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will open all of our eyes today to the fact that our great God can be magnified and his fame can be spread in this day and age through the radical generosity of his church. Take your Bible, if you have it with you this morning, and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you want to reach into your um, bulletin, your worship folder, and pull out your outline, there's the scripture also on there. We're going to be looking at this passage today. and First, let me set the scene, the backdrop for the writing of 2 Corinthians 8. It's in the middle of the first century, A.D., it's the 50s, not the 1950s, but the 50s. The Church of Jesus Christ is now about 25 years old, and from that first mother church in Jerusalem, the gospel has spread northward through what we call modern-day Syria and then west into Asia Minor, what we call modern-day Turkey and modern-day Greece. There's been a widespread famine that has affected much of that region, creating a severe economic downturn. Not unlike what we're experiencing. Food was scarce, unemployment was up. Add to that the fact that the Roman Empire at the time was heaping an additional tax burden on its citizens. You can see how the ranks of the needy were swelling during those days. Particularly hard hit was the city of Jerusalem, where that mother church, that first church, was located. These were extremely lean times for the holy city and also for that church. At the time, that church was funding many missionary efforts. Members of that church were going out and spreading the gospel, and the church was bearing the financial load of doing that. It's a great thing, but it was a financial drain on that church. In addition, you may not know this, but but Jerusalem and that church, that region had become kind of a retirement haven for elderly Christians, for folks who wanted to spend their golden years in the, the hub of spiritual activity where the action was. And so there were floods of widows and elderly folks coming into town and they needed care. And all of this together, all of these factors together created this Huge economic strain on the believers in Jerusalem. In the mid-50s A.D., their resources were badly depleted. And so the Apostle Paul became aware of this situation, and it touched his heart, it moved him. He had a a heart for this church at Jerusalem. And so in the late 40s, Paul and his comrades had begun to make the needs of that church known to the other churches. They began to say, hey, there's some... Brothers and sisters down at Jerusalem who are struggling, they're having a hard time. And he instituted a collection, an offering, and he went around to many different churches and started collecting really what amounted to relief funds for the believers there in 
Jerusalem in an effort to relieve their suffering. Now, one of those churches was in the city of Corinth, in Achaia, modern-day Greece. And that church had eagerly signed on for the Jerusalem collection early on, but as happens over time, um, they grew lax in completing this offering. And Paul here then writes to the believers at the church in Corinth, challenging them and urging them to fulfill the pledge that they had made probably about a year before. And I think there's a picture in this passage of radical generosity that I'm praying is going to touch our hearts and inspire us to help our needy brothers and sisters in the midst of our own economic storm. So follow along as I read 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. And now, brothers, talking to the believers there at the church in Corinth, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. That was another family of churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty has welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege, the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. I see several things here. The first truth I want to pull out of this is this. The radical generosity of others should inspire us. It's intriguing to me that the first thing Paul says here to the church at Corinth is, he says, hey, check out what these other churches are doing for the Jerusalem collection. Let me tell you about what they're doing. I'm not one to stir up anything, but those guys over in Macedonia, the, the Philippians, the Thessalonians, the Bereans, they're really going all out for this collection. I think reading between the lines, what Paul is saying to this church is, you're getting your rear ends kicked by these other churches. I mean, they're doing great. Are you going to allow these other churches to outdo you in this matter of generosity? Now, we all know that the Bible warns us as individuals against having a spirit of competition and rivalry, right? The Bible says that's not a good thing to cultivate in your own heart as a person. But here Paul is stirring up some friendly competition between churches, all in order to promote generosity. You know, I've been around New Life for 23 years. I think there's a little bit of that in us, in this church, a little bit of that competitive spirit. And so I want to capitalize on that and tell you a little about what some of the other churches in our town are doing to be generous this holiday season. There's a wonderful church on the other side of town called Shepherd Church of the Nazarene. Great church. We call them up, said, what are you doing to help needy folks this Christmas season? They said, well, we're having a food drive right now to, to support GRIN, Gehanna Residents in Need, GRIN, which is a local organization that helps needy folks right here in our own town. They said, we're involved in that like you guys are. We're doing a toy drive for the firefighters in our town to just kind of bless their families. We called up Stony Brook, United Methodist Church, great church over on Cherry Bottom Road. Said, what are you guys doing? They said, well, we're adopting needy families in the area like you guys are. 
We're also supplying food for Grin. We operate a free clothing store that makes clothes available to needy folks. And we've got a special drive campaign going where we're raising funds to buy mosquito nets to help prevent the spread of malaria in other parts of the world. I said, cool, way to go, you guys. I talked to my friend Kai Nilsson over at Peace Lutheran Church, another great church. They have built and established and are funding a ministry center down in Vinton County, one of the poorest counties in all of Ohio. And they fund it and they staff it. And it helps sustain the lives of impoverished families down in that area. They're doing good work. We called up Jersey Baptist, another great church in the area. And we said, what are you guys doing? They said, well, we have an adopt-a-family program where folks in our church adopt needy families for the Christmas season like you guys are doing. We distribute food baskets to needy families at Christmas time. We have a mitten tree. He said, what's a mitten tree? Well, that's where people go out and buy mittens, and they hang them on this Christmas tree, and then after the holidays, we take them to needy people in homeless camps and shelters and give them free mittens so they can keep their hands warm in the cold winter months. We said, cool. Something else that they're doing is they, are, uh, they encourage their people to keep with them in their car what they call bags of grace. Little plastic bags that have necessities in them, some food items in them. And they say, you know, whenever you drive up to a stoplight and you see a homeless person there with a cardboard sign, just stop and hand them one of these bags of grace. Just bless them with that. We said, man, that's cool. That's a great idea. New life. Let's open up our eyes and our hearts this Christmas season. And let's let God's grace to us Let's let the needs of our world, and yes, let's even let what other churches nearby are doing to inspire us to be generous and to bless needy people this Christmas season. Amen? That's what Paul said to the Corinthians. That's what I believe God would say to us today, especially those who've been hardest hit by this current economic storm. And there's a lot. There's a lot. I noticed something conspicuously absent from Paul's mention of these these generous churches. You notice something missing? There's no mention at all of any amount. He didn't say, yeah, those Macedonian churches, they raised 400,000 denarii or drachmas or whatever their currency was. There's no mention of any amount at all. Instead of focusing on what they gave, he talks more about how they gave. Not the amount, but the attitude. Not the amount, but the attitude behind it. It's as if he was saying, look, if you want to compete with those other churches, try to outdo them in the attitude category. Because when you get your attitude right, the amount will take care of itself. You say, well, what was the attitude of those believers in those other churches? Well, Paul tells us how they expressed their generosity. First, he says, they gave out of the most severe trial. They gave out of their extreme poverty. What would we call that? Sacrificial giving, right? They gave sacrificially to this collection for their needy brothers and sisters hundreds of miles away in Jerusalem. Now, you read that and you say, well, wait a second. I thought it was those Jerusalem believers who were poor and needy. And now it sounds like these guys were struggling too, and they were. But they did not let that deter them. These folks were experiencing lean times also, but they didn't close their hearts 
to the plight of their needier brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. This was indeed the poor helping the very poor. They were sacrificial in their generosity. Second, they were joyful. It says they gave out of their overflowing joy. These guys gave joyfully, not grudgingly. No one was twisting their arm. These folks contributed to this offering because they wanted to, not because they were forced to or felt obligated or guilty. They fully embraced the joy of generosity. Third, Paul notes, they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. I think Paul, when he thought about these churches, had in his mind an amount that he thought they could probably give based on their economic situation. And these churches surprised him. They gave beyond that amount, beyond their ability. And he's like, wow, how are you able to give that much? It's out of proportion to your income. You must be filled with faith. We might call this faith-filled generosity. And then he makes this statement, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. They said, don't miss us. Please include us in this collection. We want to be a part. We view it as a privilege to be a part. We could call that totally voluntary, extremely eager generosity. It would be like today if some of you sitting here listening to this message were actually in your mind thinking, I wish he would hurry up with the message. I want to get to the offer. Because I love giving in the offering. It's, it's a privilege to give to God's work and advance the, God's purposes on this planet and help the poor and such. Don't miss me. Like a pastor's dream. <laughs> a few years ago, I don't remember how this started, but somebody started a tradition in this church of clapping, of applauding at offering time. And over the years, as happens with traditions, that kind of faded. And recently, one of our members told me, hey, Steve, you need to restart that, that tradition. They said, it's important for our church to see giving as a privilege and something to look forward to. And I thought, well, you know, I don't want to, like, legislate that or manufacture it. But I would say this, if you have a heart these days that's full because of the grace that you've received from God, and God's blessed your life, and you are eager and joyful in your giving, then permission granted, okay? If you want to clap and applaud at offering time, you can do that if it comes from a sincere heart. And then the last thing Paul says about the generosity of the Macedonians is this. He says, they did not do as we expected. They gave themselves first to the Lord. And then to us, in keeping with God's will, we could call that worshipful generosity. These people exceeded Paul's expectations by seeing their giving as an act of worship. You see, they didn't just give their money to people, they gave their hearts to God. That's worship. You know, over the years, many, many people have told me that their giving, their financial giving, went to a whole other level once they gave their heart to Christ, once they, you know, released their life, 
pried their fingers off of their own life and gave their life to God, then their financial giving became just an extension of that. It became worship. So basically, Paul challenges the church at Corinth, and he says to them, look at those other Macedonian churches. Look at how generous they are. Look at how they're giving sacrificially and joyfully and faithfully and voluntarily and eagerly and worshipfully. Let their example inspire you to give in the same way. And I would say the same to New Life today. Let their example inspire us, New Life Church, to be radically generous this Christmas season. Now look at the next verse, verse 6. Paul says, So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. You say, Titus? Who's that? Well, Titus was one of Paul's companions, one of his comrades. Apparently it was Titus who had helped initiate this church's participation in the first place with this offering. And so now Paul's going to send him back to this church to help them complete their pledge. Remember I said earlier they had good intentions. They'd signed on a year ago, but they hadn't actually carried it out and fulfilled their pledge. And so what I get from that is that radical generosity, number two, involves more than just having good intentions. There's a couple things I see here. One, don't you think it's true that we need people in our lives speaking truth into our lives, helping us do the things that we want to do, that we've committed to do? That's what Titus was to this church. Paul said, I'm sending Titus so he can help you and urge you and encourage you to do the things that you want to do, the things that you've committed to do. I think we need people like that in our own lives. Hopefully you have somebody like that or a group of people, a small group like that, speaking into your life, saying, come on now. But the second thing I see here is this. It tells me it's not how you start that matters most. It's how you, what? Finish. Do you finish well? Hey, church at Corinth, you started out great. You had great intentions. Now, finish, he says in verse 11. Finish the work. Whether it's a job, a task, an assignment, a pledge to give, or a life, finishing well matters. Now, look at the challenge of verse 7. But just as you excel in everything, he wrote, would you circle the word excel? Just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel, there it is again, in this grace of giving. Now this is interesting. You know what he's saying here to this church? He's saying, you know what? Generosity, giving, is as much an area of spiritual growth as any other important areas that we might want to talk about. It's important in discipleship too, giving. Now I've got to tell you that in our culture, and especially in the current climate, it is frowned upon for pastors to talk much about money and giving and generosity. It's a subject that's often viewed as personal and off-limits, not appropriate for public discourse, kind of like... Giving and money and generosity is in a separate category. And of course, the high-profile, big-haired televangelists who talk about money all the time aren't helping matters. 
But we need to understand that the writers of Scripture did not view giving and money in a separate category. They viewed it as part of following Jesus, as important as reading your Bible, praying, attending church, connected in a small group. The other things we would say, oh yeah, those are important parts of spiritual growth. The writers of the Bible would say, yes, and generosity is also. Paul said, grow in this area. You're growing in these other areas, that's great. Grow in this area. And then he says, don't settle for mediocrity either. Become excellent. Excel in this. Excel in your giving and your generosity. I got to thinking about what it might look like for you and for me to move towards excellence in our giving. I wonder, for you, would it look like selling off some of your excess possessions so you can give more to the poor, like the rich young ruler was challenged to do? Would it look like making an actual pledge or commitment to giving regularly instead of being casual and haphazard with your giving? Is that what excellence would look like for you? Or would it involve getting off of autopilot and actually increasing your giving because you've been giving the same amount year after year after year after year? Would that be what excellent giving would look like for you? Would it involve curbing your appetite for more stuff, learning how to be content with what you have? so that you have more to give? Would it involve getting yourself in a mindset to where you could give spontaneously? A need comes up, you hear about it in your small group or in church or a conversation, and the Holy Spirit whispers to you, I want you to do something about that. And you go, yes, I'm going to give towards that. I'm going to bless somebody, just impromptu, spontaneously. Maybe that's what excellent giving would look like for you. Or... Might it involve doing what some other people have done and totally downsizing your lifestyle so that if God should one day show up on your doorstep and say, I'm calling you to give yourself away in India, you can go. Some of you noticed earlier up here on the Hammond B3, Bob Swaggerty was playing. That's what Bob did. About a year ago, he started getting himself in a financial situation to where he could get mobile and freed up And God said, I want you to go to India. And for the last nine months, Bob's been serving Christ in India. He's back for a couple months right now. Is that what excellence in giving would look like for you? Or would it involve learning to give with joy and with delight instead of grudgingly or out of duty or guilt? What would it look like for you to really excel in this grace of giving? Hope you'll think about that. Notice that in the next verse, our giving reveals something about us. Verse 8, Paul says, I'm not commanding you. <laughs> I'm not pulling rank on you. I'm not you know, using my apostolic authority to force you to contribute to this collection, he's saying. But I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. What he's saying is that opportunities for generosity are actually tests, revealing tests. He's saying, I want you to understand that this opportunity that lies before you right now to help your needy brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, it's a test, a test that will reveal the sincerity of your love for Christ and the sincerity of your love for people. 
You know, when I read the other parts of Paul's letters to the Corinthians, I get the sense that this was a church that was kind of proud of its spirituality, that they thought they were doing pretty good when it came to spiritual matters and certainly in comparison with other churches. And I think Paul is here saying, well, here's your opportunity to prove it. Talk is cheap. Let's see if you really are as spiritual and loving as you say you are. If you're the real deal, it'll show up in how you respond to the needs of your brothers and sisters down in Jerusalem. And then he drives his point home by pointing to the ultimate example of radical generosity, Jesus Christ. In one of my favorite verses, verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 8, he says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In this context, the word grace could be translated radical generosity. You're aware of the radical generosity of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he says to this church. He is your ultimate example. He is our ultimate inspiration of generosity because of his radical generosity. Who, though he was rich... When was Jesus rich? When was he rich? It was before he came here, wasn't it? Because he wasn't rich here. Though he was rich, we probably have no idea of the lavish riches and wealth of Jesus Christ in his pre-existent state when he was with the Father in heaven. Before he was shackled with a human body of flesh. When he lived in heaven, seated at the right hand of his Father, receiving the worship of millions and millions of angels, Jesus Christ was incredibly wealthy and rich. And Paul says, you need to know that, and then you need to know that even though he was rich, yet for your sakes, he says, he became poor. When did he become poor? Christmas. I think this is an ideal time of year to stop and ponder the enormity of the descent of Jesus, the Son of God, from heaven to earth and what he gave up to be one of us. Theologians say it this way, the second person of the Holy Trinity laid aside voluntarily his divine prerogatives in order to come down and be one of us. He left the throne for a manger, didn't he? He left glory for peasantry. He left riches and honor for poverty. He left wearing a crown for wearing a cross. He said goodbye to the worship of millions of angels, only to find down here on this earth, spittle running down his beard as people laughed and mocked Jesus of Nazareth. He became poor for your sakes, for our sakes. He did it for us. You know the radical generosity of Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. 
I want to look you in the eyes today and say, no matter what your financial state is today, your financial condition, if you are in Christ, if you are a repentant sinner who has bowed your knee to Jesus Christ, you are filthy rich. You're loaded. Look at your neighbor and say, I always knew you were loaded. Tell him that. You're rich. Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross, purchased for repentant sinners an unbelievable cache of blessings. Salvation, redemption, regeneration, love, joy, peace, reconciliation, emancipation, forgiveness and inheritance, glory, honor, authority, and a host of other things you can read about in the book of Ephesians. You and I today, if we are truly in Christ, are unbelievably wealthy. And it came to us because Jesus Christ set aside his wealth of heaven and became poor for us. And now God says, I want you to be like my son. I want you, my people who bear my name, to be radically generous just like my son. Now, he wouldn't say, you know, he's not saying, I want you to set aside your spiritual riches. No, those are our permanent possession, aren't they? But I think he is saying, I want you to release ownership claim to your material possessions. Release and let them be used to extend my kingdom work and bless people who are needy. I want my son's radical generosity to inspire radical generosity in you. Be like my son. Well, you know, at Christmas we talk a lot about generosity, don't we? Probably shouldn't be the only time of year we talk about it, but certainly this time of year it's appropriate to think seriously about Christ's generosity towards us and what Christ would have us to do for others. So this Christmas as a church, we are challenging each other to focus our generosity on two areas of need. And I want to mention them to you this morning. The first is taking care of our own. Taking care of our own. Giving generously to help the neediest among us during these lean times. I believe God calls us to this as a body. And it's biblical. Would you read this verse with me? Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10. It's on the back side of your outline there. Galatians 6.10. Would you read it out loud with me? Therefore, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. In other words, let's take care of our own who are going through difficult times. I love the example of that first church in Jerusalem recorded in Acts 4. It says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything that they had. Verse 34, There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Talk about redistribution of the wealth. And Joe the plumber. But this was not the government legislating this through taxes. This was the people of God doing this voluntarily from a heart that loved people. And there's a difference. We're living in lean times. I'm just curious, by raised hand, how many of you know someone who has lost their job, 
or in some way been downsized, and they're feeling the squeeze, they're feeling the pinch of the current economic storm. Can I see your hands? You know someone. Now just look around. (laughs) You can put your hands down. This, This one's different. This cycle's different than the other ones, at least that I've been a part of. This is widespread. This is global. Singapore sneezes and we feel it. Right here in our body, we're feeling it. Families, singles in our body. I think we need to acknowledge that some of us are being hit harder than others. Some of us are really feeling it. Others of us are doing okay. We're doing fine. And I think God calls those of us who are being hurt less to open our eyes and hearts to those who are suffering more. That's what the early church did. Just like we read about. You need to know that the requests for assistance coming into our office have skyrocketed these past several months. And our benevolence fund, our needy family fund, it's wiped out. We've given it all away. Everything we budgeted back in August for the whole fiscal year, by the middle of December, it's gone. We've given it away, and there are requests on the table right now from needy families. And if you've been listening to the commentators, they're saying it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. So there's more coming. And we felt like we need to do something about our own, the members of New Life who are struggling and they find themselves in an emergency situation. I love the fact that many of our small groups, and I hope you're in a small group during these days, I really do. Many of our small groups, I hear stories, are helping each other get through these hard times. Some of them are going beyond that, not only helping each other in the group, but adopting needy family outside the group. And I think that touches the heart of Christ, don't you? His heart of generosity. But you know, every Christmas season, we have a tradition around here. We take up a special birthday for Jesus offering, a Christmas offering. And this year, we've decided to take half, 50% of everything that comes in in that Christmas offering and replenish our needy family fund, replenish our benevolence fund. So we have some money to give to families and singles who are really struggling Members of New Life who are having a hard time and need some help to get over a hump. So I would encourage all of us to give to that this Christmas season according to our ability to do so so that our needy brothers and sisters right here among us can be helped through a very difficult time. So we want to do that. We want to take care of our own, but we don't want to stop there. This Christmas season, we also want to touch the world. We want to be generous in a way and give towards something that touches the world. The specific need that our generosity teams has zeroed in on is the desperate need in certain countries of our world for clean, fresh water. Now, we take it for granted, don't we? You go turn on your spigot, fill up a glass of water, drink it. You don't have a second thought about what that water might contain, I hope. But you know what? In other parts of the world, tens of thousands of people don't have that luxury and are suffering and some dying because of a lack of clean water. And we can make a difference. What if your generosity this Christmas season saved someone's life? Wouldn't that make for a blessed Christmas? To provide a clean water well? so they didn't have to drink dirty, disease-infested water? Actually, our student ministries 
jump-started this about a year, year and a half ago, started collecting money amongst the students to, to provide clean water wells in other parts of the country. A bunch of churches are coming together this Christmas season hoping to make a life-saving difference in the world and earning the right to share our message of hope through Jesus Christ, the living water, by banding together and funding the construction of clean water wells in other parts of the world. It's called the Advent Conspiracy. And we want to be part of the Advent Conspiracy this Christmas season. Take a look up at the side screens. We'll explain it to you. We want to make a difference in people's lives this Christmas. That statistic they gave, $450 billion spent on Christmas gifts, $10 billion can solve the water safety problems of the whole world. New Life Church, let's make a difference this Christmas. Let's let the grace of Jesus Christ and his richness towards us inspire us to be generous to needy people, both here among us and around the world. Let's be radically generous. Let's not just be mediocre or average in our giving and our generosity. Let's be radical. Let's start a generosity revolution together this Christmas season. For as the Scripture says, as Jesus said, as much as you have done it for one of the least of these, my brothers, you've done it unto me. Freely you have received, freely give. Remember the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. A generous man will prosper, the Bible says, and he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. Let's bow our heads for prayer together. Lord Jesus, you have been so gracious to us. You who were rich left the wealth and glory of heaven and became poor for our sakes. And now in you we are rich. And Lord, may that richness and wealth of spiritual blessings that we possess in you, may that issue forth in our lives in radical generosity towards others. Lord, will you touch our hearts with the needs present all around us every day and in this world And God, help us to give to make a difference in people's lives. Use us to spread your kingdom work throughout the world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.